Well, this morning, we're going to be focusing on a portrait of God that is stunning. Now, there are many stunning portraits of God, but this one has a particular importance for this reason. Number one, a lot of Christian people don't really know this about God, but the fact of the matter is it's one of the most important things to know about God to understand both who God is correctly and to understand who we are before Him correctly. So, I just think this is something that is so crucial for Christian people to come to, to terms with. But it is a, a, a message, a portrait that really highlights the, how God is to be esteemed above all else. And this doesn't ring true for many people in our culture that have been raised on self-esteem, right? Self-esteem. But honestly, when you think of the Bible and you've asked the question, who is to be esteemed? The answer is pretty clear from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Who is to be esteemed? God. God is to be esteemed. And you realize that one of the great ironies of the Christian life, much like the irony that Jesus said when he said, the one who wants to keep his life will lose it, but the one who loses his life for my sake will find it, it's a similar kind of an irony. You, you want a fulfilled life? You want a happy life? You, you want a human life that flourishes? Well, this is not found in making much of you. This is found in making much of God. And then realizing by His mercy and grace through Christ, we who have so little are connected with the one who has it all. So indeed, God esteem is the key to true human flourishing, joy, happiness in life. Now, what we're going to look at this morning, let me just give you a disclaimer or a warning at the beginning. You will find this sermon in many places very humbling, but in no place, I guarantee you, is it humiliating. There's nothing in this sermon that is demeaning to who we are, that is belittling to who we are, but we will find, as we look at this, these passages together and think of this idea together, how great God is and how little, how, how small, how weak and frail, how needy we are, and how the opposite is true of God in His greatness and glory. Now, how are we going to do that this morning? Well, by looking at one attribute of God. It's an attribute that we sometimes hear about but really have not focused on much in most of our churches, I suspect. It's the attribute of God's self-sufficiency. So the way the sermon will proceed is very simple. I'm going to begin with a definition of the divine self-sufficiency, so we have a common understanding of that. Then we'll move on to a couple passages to show, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, that show indeed self-sufficiency is taught in the Bible. And then we'll move after that to implications and applications. So very simple structure, definition, passages, and then implications, applications. Well, let's begin then with the definition of the divine self-sufficiency. To say that God is self-sufficient is to say that God possesses within Himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. God possesses within Himself, within himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. Now, by quality, I have in mind everything that is qualitatively good, uh, what the Puritans used to refer to as the perfections of God, what we sometimes call the attributes of God, anything and everything that is qualitatively good, holiness, 
Justice, righteousness, love, goodness, uh, wisdom, knowledge, er anything and everything that is qualitatively good, God possesses within himself intrinsically. Now, some have asked me, do you have to say, after, after you've just said that God possesses these things within himself, do you have to say that he possesses them intrinsically? And the answer is yes, you do. It's very important that you do for this reason, that it's possible to possess things within yourself that are not intrinsic to you. They rather are from outside that you take in. So the easiest example I can give to you uh, is this. If you all would, when I indicate, take a deep breath. Are you ready? Breathe in. Ah, feels good, huh? Well, that breath that is within you is not intrinsic to you. You depend upon an environment where you take in from outside something that is not yours. I mean, did you think to call the church this morning and make sure, hey, will there be air in the building? You know, I need it to live, which is true. But of course you didn't call because you just assume it's going to be there, right? But the fact is, we have to have it. You have to have air to breathe. So, Indeed, that's a, that's a quality out there that is outside of us that we take in. So here is the point with all of the qualities that are true of God. He possesses them within himself intrinsically. They are his by nature. Nobody gives to God any of these qualities. He's not beholden to anything, anyone outside of himself for the fullness of who he is as God, for possessing everything that is qualitatively good. He possesses them all by nature as God. And he possesses these qualities eternally. So there never was a time in eternity past, never will be a time in eternity future, certainly is not the case now that he lacks any of these qualities. They are always eternally his. And then the last part of the definition indicates at the end of it, he possesses every quality in infinite measure. Now the term infinite is a negative term. It means not finite, which simply begs the question then, what does it mean to be finite? Well, to be finite is to be bounded, restricted, limited. So think of it, my friends. Everything that is qualitatively good, no exception, is possessed by God within himself intrinsically by his very nature as God. He possesses these qualities eternally, and he possesses every one of these qualities without boundary, without restriction, without limitation. What an amazing God God is. Now, is this taught in the Bible? Well, indeed it is. So let's take a look at one passage from the Old Testament and then following one from the New Testament to show some of the Bible's support for this doctrine. First, turn to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 4, 0, 40, and we'll look at verses 12 to 17. <coughs> at verse 12, you'll notice that God, through the prophet Isaiah, begins to ask some rhetorical questions. Now, rhetorical questions are questions whose answers are so obvious you don't have to give the answer. Is the Pope Catholic? I think we know the answer to that. Well, at least we used to. So I don't know, you know, that's a political comment, I know, so we can take that up later, but you get the point, a rhetorical question. And uh, verse 12 has a series of these that really highlight the immensity, the greatness, the majesty, the power of God. So look with me at verse 12 
of Isaiah 40. Who do you know who has measured the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? I mean, don't you realize you just have to meditate on that verse for a long time to get what is being said here? It's incredible. Look at that very first opening statement. Who do you know who has measured, who has held in the hollow of his hand the waters of the world? Who do you know who can do that? Think of it, the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, the Mediterranean Sea. Who do you know who can hold the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand? What an amazing image for how big God is. Now, I remember a really precious memory with our two girls. So, your mother girls on the front row here and her sister, Rachel. So, Bethany and Rachel, they were young. This illustration only makes sense because they were very young. And we were on vacation along the Oregon coast near, near Cannon Beach, Oregon, staying at a, a place for a few days. And the first morning there, I read Isaiah 40 to the family with this idea in mind and talked about this a bit with them. And so when, when breakfast was over, I said to the girls, hey, girls, do you want to do an experiment with Daddy down at the beach? Oh, yes. They were eager, so they grabbed their towels, and we headed on down. And when we got down there, I said, now, girls, I want you to stand right along the shoreline where the water is coming in, and I am going to go out into that vast Pacific Ocean, and I'm going to lean down and scoop up all the water I can in the hollow of my two hands, and I want you to watch carefully to see how far the level of the ocean dips when I do that. Okay, Daddy, they're excited. They want to see this. So I went out in the ocean, scooped up water. Did it change? Sheepishly, no, Daddy. Come on, girls, look again. Watch carefully. So I leaned down, scooped up water. Did it change? No, Daddy. So I came back, got on my knees, eye level with my girls, and I said, now, girls, I want you to learn something really significant about the difference between how big we are and how big God is. I said, I'm your dad, and I go out to that Pacific Ocean to scoop up all the water I can in the hollow of my two hands, and you cannot tell anything has changed. But I said, look at that ocean. Imagine a hand that would come down and scoop up the water of that ocean so the ocean bed would be dry. That's how big God is. What an amazing image. So indeed, the power, the immensity of God, it goes on in verse 12, who do you know who has marked off the heavens by the span? Now, the span is the distance between the tip of your thumb and your little finger. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? Which, you know, in Isaiah's day may have for certain reasons been a more meaningful metaphor than for us, simply because he lived in a part of the world where there's hardly ever cloud cover, poor Israel, hardly ever cloud cover, and secondly, no electricity. So every night they would see what you and I only see occasionally when we're up in the mountains or something, right? So they would see that, that display of the, the stars of the heavens. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? It would mean so much to him in his day. For us, there's added meaning for us because we have a better comprehension today of how big this universe is. I mean, think of it with me, just a couple little things. You know light travels at 186,000 miles per second. So light leaving the sun to coming to the earth takes about seven minutes, seven and a half minutes to come here. 
the next closest star. Light leaves that star. Do you know how long it takes to get here? Four and a half years. Four and a half years. That's our next door neighbor. Light traveling at 186,000 miles per second takes over four years to arrive at planet Earth. The Milky Way galaxy is a galaxy with over 100 billion stars separated by an average distance of 10 light years. That is, light traveling 186,000 miles per second takes 10 years for it to go from one point to another. In this, in this Milky Way galaxy of 100 billion stars, and the Milky Way galaxy, if you had a universe map, would be a dot so small you couldn't even see it because of how many hundreds of millions of galaxies there are in the universe. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? Wow, what an image of God. And then finally, who do you know who can calculate the dust of the earth by the measure and weigh the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who do you know who can hold the scales upon which you weigh the mountains? You know, put the Himalayas over here. Put the Rocky Mountains over here. Hold the scales that weigh the mountains. My goodness, God is powerful. He's immense. He is majestic and glorious. Now, in verses 13 and 14, the rhetorical questions continue, but they shift subject from the immensity and power of God now to His knowledge and wisdom. Here's what the Lord through Isaiah asks, who do you know who has ever directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as His counselor has informed Him, with, who did, with whom did He consult? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? What's the answer to those questions? Who has ever been God's advisor? Answer, no one. No one has ever been God's advisor. God has no advisors. God needs no advisors. Now hear this one, my friends. God wants no advisors. Why? Well, there's a very simple answer to that question, and it is this. It is because God knows everything perfectly. Think of those two words. He knows everything perfectly. Now, in contrast, I told you this is going to be humbling. It's just starting right now, right? In contrast, wouldn't it be helpful if God would just come down for a moment and help us understand of all the knowledge that there is, all of which is His, how much of that we know? I think the answer would be something along the lines of a grain of sand on the seashore is what we know in comparison to what God knows right? I mean, so humbling to realize that. What, one of the great advantages of higher education is learning, you're going to be surprised at the rest of this sentence, learning how much you don't know. I mean, here's another field you kind of go into and you realize, wow, there's this huge wealth. I mean, I finished my PhD going, I know next to nothing about this. You know, it's just huge amount of knowledge you realize is out there and you don't know it. So indeed, how much do we know? Very, very little. Now, here's the second thing. Remember, he knows everything perfectly, right? So here's the second question. It's going to hurt. 
Wouldn't it be helpful for all that knowledge that we claim we do have, if God would help us understand of all that we claim to know, of how much of it are we correct and how much are we incorrect? I told you this one would hurt. It does. I mean, we just don't like to be wrong. But the fact of the matter is we are in many ways, many times. Oftentimes we come to see it. Sometimes we don't. So, so here's, here's the thing with God. He never suffers from either one of those afflictions. Limitation of knowledge, incorrect understanding. He doesn't suffer from that. He has perfect knowledge, endless knowledge. So indeed, he's always in the position where he knows best. How could an advisor help him? Certainly not one of us. So no one could advise God. I mean, we need to remember this when we pray. We are never in a position to instruct the Almighty, to help Him understand what He needs to know so He'll do obviously what we think needs to be done. That is not our place. We bring our requests to Him, but we bring them, yes, with boldness in Christ, to the throne of grace, but we also bring them with humility, understanding God knows best, I don't. I mean, didn't Jesus pray at the end of His prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will but yours be done? Don't you think we ought to pray the same thing? You're the one who knows what's best. So indeed, God, God has, has knowledge and wisdom that is perfect. So you see in these opening three verses, verses 12 to, to 14, the, the, the immensity of God, the power of God, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Now, beginning at verse 15, we begin to see the implications for us. So, get ready for the, the humbling, the further humbling that we'll see here. Verse 15, look with me together. Behold, the nations. Now, stop right there. Nations. This is the collective totality of humanity taken together. All of who we are, all of what we have, all of our power and prowess, knowledge and wisdom, everything taken together, what are the nations like before God? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Well, my friends, that's not very complimentary, is it? I mean, drop from a bucket, speck of dust on the scales, both refer to something that is little, tiny, inconsequential, right? Speck of dust. I mean, think of it for a moment. Imagine this scene at uh, your local deli counter. Uh, this woman in front of you has asked the fellow to cut off a pound of sliced turkey. He's done that. Put it on the scale. He's about to press the price sticker, for the button for the price sticker to come out, and, and she yells, wait a minute. He's startled. You're startled, standing behind her. And she says, you're about to overcharge me. Oh, ma'am, I'm sorry. What's the problem? There's a speck of dust on that scale. I mean, if you were there for that, you'd start laughing. I mean, a speck of dust doesn't weigh in. Isn't that the point? Yeah. Well, now, some of you may be thinking, well, at least I'm a drop. At least I'm a speck, right? Well, keep reading, my friends. It gets worse, not better. So picking up there in verse 15, behold, he lifts up islands like find us. The image there is God plays with the islands of the world like a little kid at the beach runs sand through his fingers. Even Lebanon, that area north of Israel with all of its beasts and all of its forests, even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. 
Verse 17, all the nations, notice we're back again, the collective totality of humanity taken together. Who are we before God? All the nations are as nothing before Him. Well, my friends, I think we've been demoted, right? We've gone from speck and, and a drop to nothing. You can't get worse than that, can you? You can. Keep reading. So here it is, verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before Him. They are regarded by Him as less than nothing and meaningless. I think we've hit rock bottom. Okay, now it is really important to understand what God means when He says these words and what He does not mean. Let's start with what He does not mean. When God says, when I look at the nations of the world, all of humanity taken together, they are before me as less than nothing and meaningless. He does not mean, I don't care about those nations. They mean nothing to me. How do we know that cannot be true? Well, how about John 3.16? God so loved what? The nations, the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. So indeed, this is a God who loves those nations, who sent His Son to die for those nations. This is not a God who doesn't care about those nations, right? And even in Isaiah 40, you don't have to go to John 3.16. Look at the end of Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard... The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, He does not become tired or weary. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, He increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk and not become weary. So why is it that God wants us to get this, to understand how mighty He is, how powerful He is, how knowledgeable and wise He is? Why does He want us to get this? Because He knows we, unlike Him, get weak, tired. We're feeble and frail. We are incredibly needy people. And so what do we do with those needs? What do we do in our weakness? What do we do in our folly? We go to Him who has it all. Do you see it? So come to me, wait upon the Lord and you will gain new strength. You see it. So God wants us to know how much He has, so we will go to Him who has it all. This is not a God who doesn't care about His people, who doesn't care about the nations. Okay, back to verse 17. So what does it mean then when God says, when I look at the nations of the world, I regard them as less than nothing and meaningless. Here's what it means. If you ask the question, given the infinite fullness of God, you ask the question, what could the nations of the world all of humanity taken together, all of their knowledge, their wisdom, their power, their prowess, what could they add to the infinite fullness that is God's? Answer, they could add nothing, absolutely nothing, because God is self-sufficient. He possesses within Himself intrinsically and eternally 
every quality in infinite measure. He's a great and glorious God, the self-sufficient God. Okay, let's look at one other passage, this one from the New Testament, Acts 17, where we'll also see the self-sufficiency of God so beautifully put on display. At verse 16, you'll notice that Paul is in the city of Athens, and while he's there, he has been walking around the streets of the city, talking to people, and he's observed that they are a very religious people. There are shrines and altars and inscriptions to every known deity. The only God they have left out happens to be the one and only true and living God, the irony of that. So Paul is telling them about who the true God is. And at verse 23, let's pick up there, Paul addresses them at the Areopagus, this place in Athens where he tells them now who this God is. Verse 23, Paul says, well, while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this God I proclaim to you. Okay, listen, verses 24 and 25, this is theology 101 from the Apostle Paul. It doesn't get more basic or more important. Here it is. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, as you Athenians think, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people, life and breath and all things. Now, do you see self-sufficiency in those verses? It's there, verse 25. He isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything. Well, I submit to you, if he doesn't need anything, it's only because he possesses everything, right? He possesses within himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. He can't be added to. He doesn't have any needs as God. So, Paul grounds the self-sufficiency of God is really the key thing that he drives out in verses 24 and 25, and he grounds that three different ways. The first one is this, beginning in verse 24, God is the creator of all that is. (coughs) Excuse me. So, Paul declares in verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it. Okay, now think with me. This is worth thinking hard about. If his main purpose is to drive towards self-sufficiency, he begins with God as creator. The question then is, what does God as creator, what's the logical connection between God as creator and God being self-sufficient? Or to put it more clearly, what is it about God as creator that shows that the God who creates must also be self-sufficient? You see it? Well, here it is. So, how did God create according to the teaching of the Bible? He spoke and brought into existence a universe that did not exist before. Creation out of nothing, as we understand the Bible to teach. Well, but who did exist before? God. Just as He is God. God is immutable. He's unchangeable in His essence, in His fullness. So indeed, God existed just fine, thank you, without a universe as He exists now when He creates the universe. So that means that God doesn't depend upon the universe at all. 
right? So indeed, the heavens that God created, uh, you know, that, that He created are, are what they are only because they reflect His own character now put in physical, visible form, right? His power manifest in physical, visible form. His wisdom manifest in physical, visible form. His beauty manifest in physical, visible form. But the heavens have nothing to do with being the heavens. Indeed, God is the one who deserves to be glorified for the heavens because He's the one who made them and made them in every particular that they are. So indeed, the heavens... The world, the universe, you and I, depend upon God for how much? Everything. And He depends upon us for how much? Nothing at all. He does not need the creation that He has made. Secondly, He's not only creator of all it is, but, verse 24, since He is Lord of heaven and earth. And of course, this is just good biblical theology. To create is to own, and to own is to have rightful rulership over. Well, how much did God create? Everything. How much does he own? Everything. How much does he have rightful rulership over? Everything. Isn't that amazing? So, my friends, you know, when we talk about owning things, you know, you own your house, you own some particular object, whatever the case might be, that concept of ownership is a horizontal one among other people, right? So indeed, it would be stealing to take something of another's and take it to yourself. So there are those concepts that are true and very important at the horizontal level. But when you think vertically of our relationship with God, how much do we own before God? Now, I'm going to have you give the answer to this because it'll be good for your soul to give it. How much do we own before God? We own nothing. Let's hear it. We own nothing. He owns it all. So, if we are not owners of anything before God, but we have things, then what's the term, what's the concept that relates to what we have before God? Not ownership, but stewardship, right? Well, stewardship and ownership are two very different things. If you're the owner, you can do with it as you please. But if you're a steward, you have something that is owned by another, granted by the other to give to you and use in a way that the owner approves. Isn't that stewardship? To, be have, some, to have something that has been given to you by the owner to use that in the way the owner approves. That's stewardship. So it's amazing. So God owns it all. He rules it all. Now, what does that have to do with self-sufficiency? Well, it simply means this, that God is never then in a position where He wants to get something done, but other people have what He needs, and so He has to get their permission to use it in order for Him to complete this work He's got to do. He's never in that position. Why? Because they never have anything that isn't His already, right? He can use it as He chooses. He's never in a position like a woman baking a cake, borrowing a cup of sugar from the neighbor to finish what she's doing. He's never in that position. He created it all. He owns it all. He rules it all. He is self-sufficient in the created order that He has made. And then, finally, the last point that Paul makes is at the end of verse 25. He says that God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Now, think of those two uses of all there. He gives to all people life and breath and all things. 
Well, if he gives to all people all things, then I submit to you, he must antecedently possess what? All things. He has to have it to give it. So indeed, God possesses within himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. He is a self. He is the self-sufficient God. All right, let's take a look now. We'll move on to the implications and applications of this doctrine that are sobering and worship-inspiring. They're both of those things together, humbling and exalting of God. So let's look together. First implication is the most basic one. We've actually already stated it, but it's just good to think about it separately. Here it is. Because God is fully self-sufficient, God does not need the glorious creation that He has made, either in whole or in any part, including His creation of human beings. As humbling as it is true, God does not need us or anything that we have to offer. Now, my friends, when I first learned this, I was 18 years old when I first learned this. It was the end of my freshman year of college. I had read A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy that absolutely revolutionized my life. In many ways, I am who I am today, doing what I've done for the past many, many years uh, because of the work God did in my life through that book, The Knowledge of the Holy by Tozer. And one of his chapters in that book is on the self-sufficiency of God. And when I read it, I was shocked because it was so different from what I learned in the Baptist church that I grew up in. I can remember, for example, a Sunday school class where uh, I, was, I was a fifth grade, I was in a fifth grade boys Sunday school class, and a friend of mine in the class asked the teacher a question I was really interested in. I wanted to know the answer to this. The question was, why did God make us? Why are we here? And without any hesitation, the teacher responded, you know, before God created us, He was all by Himself. He was lonely. He had no one to talk to no one to have fellowship with, and so he created us to fill this void in his life, to be his friends. And I remember sitting there hearing that answer, thinking to myself, what a wonderful purpose for life, what a wonderful reason for living, to help out poor God. Poor God needs a friend. I can be his friend. I can do that. <coughs> so this poor God theology, as I came to call it, Obviously, it was never referred to that in, in the church, but this poor God theology was pervasive in the church in many ways. One of the most obvious places was missionary calls. So we'd have, you know, mission, missions uh, weekends, missions weeks, missions programs, and we were a very missions-minded church, which is a great thing, but so often in those missionary calls, you would hear, if you don't go, you can hear it yourself, can't you? If you don't go, what's the implication of that? If you don't go, God is stuck. He's not going to be able to do what He wants to do. I mean, really, He's dependent upon you to, to finish His work. You know, so you could almost see God wringing His hands in the background. Oh, I hope someone will do it. Someone will go. I mean, it is so belittling to God. So wrong to think that way. Why? Because God doesn't need any Christian worker 
any of us to do any of the things He calls us to do. He does not need me here this morning. God is fully capable of doing directly in your lives, unilaterally, directly in you, what He wants done, but He didn't design it that way. He designed to use people as His conduits through whom His work is done. But, you know, missionaries, just, just take that notion for a moment of missionaries. God does not need missionaries. You know what, you know what God could do right now? He is omnipotent, all power, all powerful. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere present. He's omniscient. He knows everything. You put those together and you realize God could, at this very moment, if He chose to do it, speak the gospel in perfect dialect to every single person on the planet, and the entire world would be evangelized in the next 20 minutes. Yeah, He could. He's God. Why doesn't He do it that way? Ah, more on this in just a moment. Because He loves us and wants us to be participants with Him in His work. So, coming to that in just a moment. So, indeed, this was just a shocking idea to me and one that has shaped so much of how I think is to re recognition God doesn't need me. He doesn't have me here at Mission Road Bible Church this morning because, boy, they really need Bruce to be there. No. He could, do, he could do it himself. He could, you know, he raise up from these stones children of Abraham, right? I mean, just so, so God is just not it, but he chooses to use us. Isn't that incredible? Okay, number two, why are we here? If the answer to the question, why did God create us, why are we here, is not because he was lonely. By the way, what's the theological answer to the notion that God created us because he was lonely? The doctrine of the Trinity, Right? God is a social unity. There is a social relationship among Father, Son, and Spirit of love and fellowship and communion that, that would mean that God has everlasting joy, everlasting fullness of life within the Trinity. He doesn't need us to fulfill some lack in Him because there is no lack in Him. He is infinitely full in every way. So, why are we here? What is our purpose? And the answer is this. Are you ready to worship, my friends? Here it is. Though God doesn't need us, amazingly, He loves us. Now, just stop right there, and you realize this is unlike any relationship I've ever known. This is unlike marriage, which is kind of the, the pinnacle of human love in marriage. But you know what? Two needy people marry each other. So Jody and I need each other, and there's no way either one of us could say to the other, oh, I have no needs. I'm just here to give. I mean, you would hear that as preposterous and arrogant, right, from a human being to say that to another. Oh, no, we all are bags of needs, and we need each other, and God puts us in relationships with each other in many, many ways, not just marriage, because we need each other. The love we have for one another includes in our love receiving from them what we need. So, here is the one relationship that exists that is different, where God loves us though He does not need us. Incredible. Then, then what, what does that mean that He loves us? Well, keep reading with me. And hence, His purpose in creating and redeeming us is not that we might fill up some lack in Him, He has no lack, but rather that He might fill us up with Himself. 
He made us empty to be filled with his fullness, thirsty to drink of the water of life, weak to receive his strength, foolish to be instructed and corrected by his wisdom. In his love, he longs to give, to share the bounty. He wants us to experience in finite measure the fullness of joy and blessing that he knows infinitely, all to redound to the praise and the glory of His name, the giver and the provider of all the good that we enjoy. So do you see it, my friends? Here's a simple answer to the question, why are we here? To be loved by God. It's just a stunning way of understanding this, to be loved by God. That's why we're here. (coughs) Not that God needs us for anything that He is, to be loved by Him. Now, some, you know, I just know this from talking about this before. Some have said, well, wait a minute. The great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Isn't that the main reason we're here? No, that's the main activity that we are to engage in. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But here's my question. With what do we do that? We love because... He first loves us. We don't have it. We don't have it within ourselves to love Him or to love others. We only have anything that we have because He first gives it to us. In ourselves, we have nothing. Because of Him, we have all that we have. So number three, C, capital letter C, why does God enlist our service? Consider Psalm 100 verse 2, which says, Serve the Lord with gladness. It's an imperative. And Psalm 17:25, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. How do these go together? Well, the answer is this. God doesn't need our service, Acts 17:25. So his call, in fact, command for us to serve, Psalm 100 verse 2, is his gracious call for us to participate in the privilege and the joy of the ministry of grace, notice this, that flows from him into us and then through us into the lives of others. We can take no credit. All that we have is a gift from him, and he gives us what we have to be used in service to others. So, when you think of the word ministry, which, by the way, applies to every Christian, it isn't just the professionals, the folks up here on the stage who are the ministers. No, you, the congregation, if you're in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, you are a minister according to Ephesians 4. So, God raises up apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip those for the work of ministry. That's Everybody. Okay, so when you think ministry, which is what we all need to be doing, if the words that come to your mind are words like difficulty, opposition, uh, trouble, uh, uh, resistance, if these are words that come to your mind, it's not that those things are not true, but they dare never become prominent. What is the one word that ought to leap to your mind and fill your heart when you think ministry? It is the word privilege, privilege. I mean, we're granted a place to play on the team. In fact, not only on the team, I was on many teams I didn't ever play. You can guess why. You know, I just, you know, I wasn't called into the game. Every now and then, where you're in, oh my goodness, was that ever thrilling, right? To be called into the game. So here we are, my friends, we're called into the game of 
the advancement of the kingdom of Christ, the work of God. There is no greater work than the the work God is doing, and He allows us the privilege of participating in His work. So do you see it? Because of His love for us, He calls people to be missionaries. He calls people to be pastors. He calls laymen to be involved in their workplace with their neighbors in their their neighborhoods, to to give generously because of the joy, the, the, the privilege it is of being involved in His work. Fourth and finally, capital letter D, how can we know and be rightly related to this glorious, rich, full God? Answer, in our sin... It is impossible, and apart from God's grace, we are eternally separated from this one who alone is good, true, wise, holy, beautiful, and joy-filled. Let those words sink in. Separated eternally from all joy, all beauty, all goodness, all truth, forever and ever. But through faith in Christ... We are reconciled to God and enabled to know God. What love, what grace, what mercy, what joy is ours in God, but only through Jesus Christ. As Jesus himself declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So have you trusted in Christ this morning? Are there some of you who have been wondering whether to do this or not? Well, I just want you to know that Jesus himself said, I have come that you might have joy and might have it abundantly, right? These, these commandments I give you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. So you realize that by not coming to Christ, not repenting of your sin, believing in Christ, you are missing out now and forever of the only true joy there is, the only true, true beauty and 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 uh, splendor that there will be for all of eternity. I mean, honestly, I don't mean offense, it's just true. How foolish, how utterly foolish. So put your hope in Christ now. Turn from yourself, turn to Him, repent of your sin and trust in Christ and be reconciled to this glorious God who has everything to give you in your need. Now, those of you who are His, which I take it as most of you here this morning, who belong to God through Christ, do you realize afresh this morning what your purpose for living is? It isn't first and foremost serving the Lord. That flows out of something else. Let's call it seeking the Lord, right? Seeking the Lord, going to Him to be filled with His knowledge, His wisdom, His power in my weakness, to to be sustained by Him and moved by Him in ways that were transformed so that then out of our fullness, just as out of the overflow of God's fullness He gives to us, out of our fullness we then give to others in service. So, are you seeking the Lord? Are you going after Him? Do Do you look for Him day by day to know Him better? May may God help us to realize this is what life is about, to know the Lord. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. May God help us to seek to know the Lord. Well, my friends, God is great and glorious. He is worthy of our honor and worship. We, in contrast, are feeble, frail, needy people who have the incredible privilege through Christ, of being connected to the one who has it all. Go to Him and find 
true joy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege this morning of being able to look at glorious truths about you, and we pray that our hearts would be filled to overflowing as we seek to uh, want to follow you with all of our hearts. Uh, we commit ourselves toward that end for your glory and the good of us, your people. May this be true. In Christ's name, amen.